I want to begin this morning reading Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. In light of the passage just read, I want to ask you a few questions this morning. As you sit here today, do you believe that the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives your soul? Do you believe that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple? Do you believe that the precepts of the Lord are right and cause rejoicing in the heart? Do you believe the commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes? Do you believe the fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever? Do you believe the instruction of the Lord is true and righteous altogether? Do you believe that the instruction of the Lord is more to be desired than gold and it's sweeter than honey? Do you believe that the instruction of the Lord, by keeping it, you are warned and in keeping it, there is great reward? Today, our lives are going to collide with the Word of God. And for some of us, this collision may be troublesome. It might offend the way we think about and view the world as we have been taught it. It is in these times that we need to be reminded of passages like Psalm 19, 7-11 and passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 where we are instructed that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And passages like Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, which tell us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, to whom, of him to whom we must give account. I want to state up front that here at Aletheia Church, your pastors and elders believe that this collection of books handed down to us throughout the generations is the divinely inspired and inerrant Word of God. And it is under it that we sit this morning. It has already been read for you, but today's passage is one that It's tough to stomach. It's tough to swallow. It's tough to work through, and it's probably even tougher to apply to our everyday lives. Peter, writing to his audience, to the churches spread throughout, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Last week before he preached, I asked Kevin in the back, I said, hey, who do you think has the tougher passage? You this week telling people they have to submit and to respect the, the governing authorities placed over them, or me telling wives they have to be subject to their husbands. And we pretty much agreed it was a toss-up. No, no one won. No one got out easy on this passage. And so uh, I, I want to explain, you're, you're going to get a little more kind of the teaching side of Daniel than the preaching side of Daniel. In passages like this where it requires some explanation and pulling out the historical cultural context from 2,000 years ago and making application to our lives, it, I, I put a little bit more of the, the, the teacher hat on than the preacher hat. Sometimes when words like this are, are really heavy and really difficult, I try to hold back my personality just a bit because I, I, I don't want to offend you any more than the Word of God already has. So, um, so, so, so if I'm a little more uh, tame this morning, uh, that will be the reason why. But as Charles Spurgeon said, uh, the gospel is like a lion. All you have to do is let it out of its cage. Um, so today we will just let the Bible out of its cage and let it do its good work among us. Peter begins with a word, likewise. When we see this word, we have to realize Peter is connecting to something that he has previously said. And last week we talked about that we are instructed as followers of Jesus to be subject to the governing authorities because God and his sovereignty has placed them over us. And we are, and those who are household servants are to be subject to their masters, even if they are unjust masters. And the example that Peter gives for us to follow is that of Jesus. Because he said, if Jesus acted this way, when he had committed no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in these challenging words that Peter issues to the husband and wife today, the one that we look to is Jesus, but yet he's given us two previous examples, or called us to two previous examples, to which we should also consider ourselves subject. And we do this because... We have been called a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a people for God's own possession. And as I preached to you two weeks ago, we out of that identity, the two movements we should see in our lives is us proclaiming the excellencies of Christ with our mouth 
And we should do deeds in such a way that stand out to those who don't know Christ, that even though they might revile us because of what we do, on that day that God comes on the, of his glorious visita- visitation, they will see our good deeds and they will glorify God because of how we lived our lives in light of our identity in Christ, in light of our union with Christ. So connecting this likewise to the, everything that's been said so far in Peter, especially in chapter 2, he issues these instructions Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, notice here, the aim toward which Peter tells wives to be subject to their husband is so that their husband would become a follower of Jesus. This is, this is an evangelistic tactic, an evangelistic technique for wives to the husband at this time. You've got to think, Christianity is brand new. It's just come on the scene. It's only been around about 30 years since Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And, and there is this new movement breaking out in this area that we called, that we term Christianity, they called the way. And you need to understand it was greatly disrupting the society around it. Because in Greco-Roman culture, there was truly a stratified society from governing authorities to husbands and to wives and to children and to value and worth. People were put, like I'm sure you've heard in India, the the, the classes that exist in, in Indian culture. These classes would have existed. This society would have been very stratified, very structured, and would have been very ordered. And in this society, there definitely was a superior looking upon the man, uh, the man was considered superior because he was stronger, because he could provide, he was the only one that usually could provide in the home, and because he was considered superior, the wife was expected to obey in two very particular areas that Christianity was upsetting. Number one, wives were expected to worship the exact same gods of their husbands. And any wife who did not worship the same gods as her husband would have been seen as disruptive and disrespectful. Also, women were supposed to only have friends within her husband's social circle. So now she's a believer. Now she has this new community called the church. She has these new friends. So in the home and in society, she would be seen as greatly disruptive. Now remember what we said about Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, right? That they may see your good deeds even though they speak evil against them. So people would have been speaking evil against the Christian, the Christian wife just for being a Christian and following Jesus. And 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 this is very well documented because um one of the great writers of um of Greco-Roman culture Plutarch said and this was widely accepted A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. 
So it is into this context that Peter is writing. And he's saying to the wives, now, now, now listen, you want your husband to become a follower of Jesus. So if you are going to do this in light of the current cultural climate, here is my guidance to you. That you would be subject to your own husbands, one who does not obey the word, and that you would win him over without a word, but by your conduct. So from this, we can imply that, hey, don't go around nagging your husband about being a Christian. Be respectful of who he is. Have conversation when it appropriates itself, because you are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But do not go around nagging him to become a follower of Jesus. Let God work this out over time. And God will most likely work this out through your conduct. And you have to understand, in this society, this would have been a hard thing for a woman to, to accept because they, they would have been considered lower than a man. They would have been considered less than a man. And because of that, um, husbands could be pretty mean. I mean, I, I mean, I've been around this earth, earth long enough. I know how men treat women in a very general way. And many times it is not very pleasant and nice. So now imagine this wife who is seen as disruptive where he's getting picked on by his friends and his family and his co-workers and all these people in their social circles that he might make life pretty miserable on her. And so to that, he is saying to her, you need to be careful with your conduct. In the end, as we see many times, people are impressed by the restraint, by the, by the gentleness of Christ. Again, gentleness is not a bad word. It's not a weak word. Christ is called gentle, but it's one thing. it implies strength. Though there is strength there, you restrain because the goal is to win the husband over to Christ in the end. So that's kind of the best historical cultural context I can give you of what Peter is riding into this morning. And so you might be saying to yourself, well, whew, we're off the hook because he's riding into that culture 2,000 years ago and we have moved way past that in today's society. We don't even need to talk about those things in the church because we all know that men and women are created equal, which yes, the Bible says we are equal, but we're still not the same. So in a message like today, there's guys in the room who won't, won't qualify under the wife category ever in their life. There are many young ladies who are not yet married, but there's a much smaller group of ladies who are married. So the next thing I need to do with this passage is I need to speak directly to the married women and give you a broader picture of this instruction to be subject to your husband. Because if this is the only place this was mentioned in Scripture, we might be able to get away with saying, okay, this was just a cultural argument. But what I want to say and what the Scriptures say is this is actually a creation argument. From creation and from the created order, it is Peter given these instructions first and foremost, but he's speaking into the culture because the created order takes precedence over the social order, though he is speaking into the social order, but realize it is from the created order. Because to us, to the married women, God says that there is a divine order 
in marriage. But it's not just in the marriage to which it applies. So if you will look at 1 Corinthians 11.3 up on the screen, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. All right, So, so we get right off the bat, the head of every man is Christ. So Christ here. Man here, all right, if we're looking in a very linear fashion, hold on, we're going to get out of this linear thing in just a minute. The head of a wife is her husband, so the wife would be here in the relationship. And the head of Christ is God, so the Father, all right? So we see this divine order up on the screen if we're just looking at how, um, I, I forget, they told me this TV is off. I keep forgetting that it's off. So the divine, I'm always, I always look to the left. This is very hard for me this morning. Um, uh, there is the divine order of the father, Jesus, husband, and wife. Okay? Now, if this is a little shocking to your senses and, and hurts your feelings a little bit, let, let me explain um, because it, it, it's not as it seems directly on the surface. As, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we believe in something called the Trinity. We believe there is one God, yet there are three persons in that one God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We believe that the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal with one another, and they are co-eternal with one another. Though they are equal in value and in worth, in function, Jesus submits himself to the Father. Always. If you look in Scripture, the Son never sends the Father. The Son never instructs the Father. But God the Father always sins, always instructs Jesus. And Jesus shows deference to the Father. He submits to the Father and to the Father's will. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and to the Son, always showing deference to the Father and the Son. So there is no difference in their equality, in their Godhead, in their importance, and in who, and who they are. But yet, there is a structured order even within the Godhead. So it is to the Godhead that we look, and we also mirror our marriages in a very similar way. Because to this... There is a created order that God has placed within marriage. That husbands would be the head of the family. That he would be the head of the wife. That is why in other places in Scripture, like Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and so this is how we know that what Peter was writing was just not a, a cultural argument, was again, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So not only is Christ the head of the husband, but he's also the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. One more? Oh, no, that was it. Okay. So, so we see there is this implied order of wives being called to submit to their husbands. Now, what I, I want to say, again, so this is not an accommodation to culture in any way, shape, or form. But I want to point out, to the culture that Peter is writing to, it was a very stratified society, okay? It was very stratified top to bottom. 
we in America, we live in a flat society, okay? It has been squished down and flattened out to where kind of everyone, we want everyone to kind of be the same, everyone to be equal, for no one to be greater than anyone else. And this is really taking itself over into into leadership organizations. I mean, I've read books on this stuff, um, like the starfish and the spider, of how things used to be structured, and now we want flat organizations where everyone is empowered, no hierarchical order. This has made itself into marriage. It's made its way into families where people believe they don't even have the right to tell their children what to do. Um, Let me just say, don't ever listen to anybody who tells you that. All right? That is pure lunacy. If, if you do, do not ever be a parent, like give me your kids, I will raise them. Okay, seriously, if you believe that, just give me, give me your children, I will take them. Because if you think you do not have the God-given authority, or nor is it wise for you to instruct your children and to make them bend their will to yours, yeah, you have no business being a parent, okay? So to this, there, there, we, we, there's this flat society out there that says kind of we're, we're all equal, we're all the same. And so what I want to say again is the Bible affirms we're all equal. In God's eyes, men and women are equal, but we are not the same. And he has given different instructions and even given different roles to us within the marriage. The husband is called to lead. He is called to be the head of the family. But he has a head as well. He he does not get out of this in any way, shape, or form because his head is Jesus himself. And it it is to that head that he is responsible. To this head, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ladies, in this call to be submissive to your husband, uh, understand this. This is a position that you are supposed to take. Husbands, understand this. You are never, ever, 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 ever to tell your wives, submit, woman. If you have to do that, then you are a terrible head. If, if, if that is where your marriage is, that is a sign of incredibly poor headship by the man, not necessarily rebellion by the woman. Too many men have abused this passage and said, women, wives, you must submit because the Bible says so. Guys, this never tells you to tell her to submit. The instruction is directly to her. This is a position, wives, that you are to take if you are to honor your husband and and to honor God in marriage. What I will say is, biblical submission, ladies, is this. It is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. There are six things submission is not, wives. Submission is not agreeing on everything. 
It does not mean leaving your brain at the altar once you get married. It does not mean you do not try to influence your husband. For the sake of all of us, please influence your husband. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Submission does not mean getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband, and it does not mean living or acting in fear. That is not what is implied when the Bible calls wives to submit to their husbands. And ladies, I just want to say this to you, married and unmarried. I've been married for 15 years. I have a great marriage. Wouldn't trade my marriage for the world. It is it has met and exceeded every expectation I ever had of marriage. Totally love being married to my wife, Leah Espy. It is fabulous and wonderful. She makes my life, my children's life, and everyone's life around here a thing of joy. Having been a pastor in the Northwest and experienced lots of different cultures in the Northwest, inside the church and outside the church, I can tell you, even the marriages you think are good usually aren't very good if they do not understand this biblical pattern of how it's supposed to work. Because, and again, and ladies, I, I, let me say, I understand it. it must be incredibly trying to try and submit to some of our boneheadedness sometimes. Because there are times when men become passive, you know, one of, one of the curses of man laid on him in Eden is that because of the ground of the work and it being hard to work, many men become passive. And the problem is when men become passive, women aren't passive. You know what women do? They jump, into, they jump and fill that leadership void. We've all heard nature abhors a vacuum, right? So in your, in your marriage, there, there has to be leadership. And if the man is not providing that leadership, a wife who is more than capable, more than able, and sometimes incredibly better at this thing. She jumps and she fills that hole. But ladies, you need to know that when you do that, you rob him of his biblical manhood. And you may be saying to yourself, but, 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 he just wouldn't do it. He, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Let me say this to you. You do not jump into that vacuum no matter how big and how vacuous it gets. You just keep telling him every day, big boy, this between you and God, I am not going to jump into your role and I'm not going to do this for you. God has given you this role. I want you to man up, be the man that God has called you to be, the one you told me you were going to be before we got married, and I expect you to lead me in this family the way God has called you to. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until you and God figure it out. You do that, you will bless your husband, and you will bless your family, and you will bless your children. If you jump in there, and if you allow him to remain passive, you will have a marriage that is not everything that God wants it to be. And let me say, this is, because it's not necessarily all, all doom and gloom, you know, like, because you may be fine, and you may make it fine, but I can tell you what, it'll never be as good as it could have been. It'll never flourish and grow the way God intended it to. Because if God is our creator, and he has created an order inside of certain things, and he tells us how certain things work best, might it be that marriage actually works best when we understand the biblical model and live our lives 
in accordance to how God calls us to live. The problem with sermons like this is that you need at least five sermons to cover the topic. I only got one time, one shot. So I don't expect that I've answered all your questions on, on this section of it. If you have questions, come ask me. Come ask my wife. You can ask Kevin's wife, Jackie, Kevin, any of the elders, any of the pastor's wives. Come and ask. We will, we will, this is, I understand this is so nuanced. Because right now in your mind, well, what about this situation? Well, what about this? I'm, one time I saw, I, I know, you know we, we got an exception for everything. So if those exceptions are really bothersome to you, just come let me know. We'll, I'll do my best to answer them before I get on a plane and fly to San Diego this afternoon. Okay? So, now... So I've addressed the cultural context, I've addressed married women in our context, and let me address the unmarried women in our context. Because I have, I have really good news for you who, who, are, who are unmarried. Um, if, if you don't ever want to be subject to a man, just don't get married. It's, it's simple. I mean, it's real simple. Like, if this really bothers you and offends you, like, just don't get married. Because, because let me say, the only person you're to be subject to is to your own husband. You are not subject to any other man I don't care how much money he's got, how much power he's got. You are not to be sub subject to men. You are to be too subject to one husband, your own husband. And if you don't want to do that, don't do it. And then you get to go, hey, Paul said it was better to be single anyway, right? So that way you just get to go, you get to worry about it, and you're all, and, and you're, and you're all good. Okay? So there, there's totally an escape clause. All right? Because God knew some women, they just do not want to do this. All right? So here's your way out. Okay? So, but to you who are married, too bad, so sad, all right? Uh, no. <laughs> so, um, that's two verses that we've covered so far um, this morning. Um, yeah, it, it, and it just gets easier. Um, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Um, again, having been around the, the block enough times, been, been around the sun uh, uh, 42 times so far in my life, um, you know, I've, what, I, what, I, what I can tell you is many women, so like this, who would have been in really tough marriages, if they're not getting the love that they need from their husband, will go out and flaunt themselves in ways physically to get, a, to get attention from other people, from other women or from other men. Guys, I, th this might not surprise you. It surprised me. I was told one time that when you go out on a date with your honey, realize she's not dressing for you. She's dressing for other women. All right, that, that, that she's more worried about impressing the other women than she is about impressing you. So, so in that case, however this actually works for you ladies, because I didn't grow up with any sisters or anything, so women are really confusing to me. And so I feel incredibly inadequate to, to preach on anything when it comes to women. And I have to ask my wife a lot of advice and questions uh, when it comes to this stuff. There is a way that you should not dress to get attention from others. If you are dressing to get attention, then Peter would say, 
That's not the kind of attention that you should be seeking. But also, it is most likely that some women, having been told they have this freedom in Christ, were using this freedom in Christ and were going out and speaking in such a way in society and dressing in such a way to say, I am now free in Christ. And they were flaunting their freedom, again, causing problems inside the home and causing problems in culture, upsetting the cultural order. And that was not wise because that would not help win the husband over toward Christ. So what we see here as Peter instructs them is that, and again, I know like this just does not preach well at all in the world of feminism, um, that the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, You know, what? What, what does that mean? I don't know. You know, like, like I mean, what, what does that mean? Because you, you, you have to speak up. You, you, there are times when you have to speak up, but yet there is a way to which you can speak to your husband. And what I would say it actually means, I do know what it means. It means to speak respectfully to your husband. Because if you go on and look in, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and, you, and you'll see then there's a book called Love and Respect. If you've never read it, Emerson Egerich's, it's a great relationship book. And he kind of hits on it. A woman's primary need is love and security. A man's primary need from his spouse is respect. And so it, it is to speak in a respectful way toward your husband. And, and ladies, remember this, that there is a statement, a beautiful statement in scripture in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have, I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is as Samuel was going to select David as king, that it wasn't about David's physical stature, his outward appearance, but it was about the heart that he had toward God. And so the most valuable thing in God's eyes and in God's mind is that our hearts are aligned right with him, for that is what God looks like. Adorn yourself with beauty on the, outs- on the inside rather than the outside. And I will just say this, um, you know, this, I think this adorning externally um, applies not only to the wife context, but it also applies, I think, just to women in general. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm, I'm, just, I'm defending everybody today, so we're just going to get all the offense out there as much as possible. Um, I understand in our current rape culture as it's titled, and I put that in quotes because I don't know, I know what it means, but, you know, we all have kind of different phrasing for how we understand this word. Um, so many times men have used how women dressed as an excuse for their incredibly poor, abhorrent, horrible behavior. So let me say to men, there is no excuse ever for you to treat a woman without the respect and dignity that she deserves as she has been created by God. No matter how skimpily or scandalously you think she may be dressed. There is, you, you are responsible to be control of your own spirit. But ladies, let me also say to you, for your Christian brothers in this room, they have grown up in a world where many of them are incredibly addicted to a thing called pornography. And because they are addicted to this thing for pornogra- uh, pornography, they have a hard time viewing you as anything but sexual objects because the culture around you has taught them that that is what you are rather than giving you your esteemed value and worth as you are in the eyes of God. And so I would just ask you to consider to not be 
a stumbling block or, a, or, or monitor how you might be a temptation to other men in their lust. Again, they are responsible for their own thing, and you are not responsible for what they say and they do. But yet you are responsible if you prove to be a stumbling block in some ways. And I understand, and let me say, in Florida, I think this is really, really difficult. Because having just come from Seattle, where it's cold and people actually wear clothes all the time, and we bundle up really, really well all the time, um, you just don't see a lot of skin in Seattle. You see like a lot of flannel and socks and sandals, people. But, um, but here in, in Florida, where you grow up in pool culture and beach culture, I just imagine anything more than a bathing suit actually seems modest. You know, it's kind of like, hey, I got on clothes. Like, this is really modest compared to what I, you know, I normally see on, on the beach and the pool. And, and, that, and that is true. But the question you have to ask is, is this the modesty that, that God would actually encourage you to consider in your dress? Ladies, let me also say this. Don't just let yourself go. Too many women, they get married and they just let themselves go. No, like, like you, should, you should strive. And I, I don't say that in a bad way, but trust me, I, I've been in... I've been, I, trust me, this is, this is the thing, like, like, you know, and, oh gosh, I'm getting so much trouble, I'm digging, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so again, I'm getting on an airplane in an hour or so, so I'm going straight, I'm, I'm getting out of town for a whole eight days, so y'all can't find me anywhere, I'll be on the beach, I'll be on the beaches of San Diego, so, okay, um, <laughs> Oh, I don't even want to go down that road now. I think I might just take a U-turn. No, I mean, I don't even know what I'm saying. Where was I at? Yeah. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that, I, I don't mean that necessarily in, in, a, in a physical way because, you, you know, he was drawn to your beauty. And so there should be a way that you strive to still attract him with your beauty. I mean, like, I love chasing my wife around the house, okay? Like, I like it when she wears something nice. And uh, it's part of the fun part of marriage because this is the only place in life that God says, I get to chase a woman around the house and not get in trouble for it, okay? So this is a, this is a good thing. Just cut off the recording right now. I don't want this to go Because <laughs> people are going to send this all across to people. I can't believe what this guy said. All right, I'm just moving on the next subject. I don't care if I finished what I was saying. Um, yeah, you can throw tomatoes at me later. Um, verses five and six. Let's just really dump, jump in because now it gets worse because now you've got to call him Lord apparently, okay? Um, <laughs> for this is how the holy women, this is not how any of this went in my rehearsal yesterday. Um, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Guys, just let me say, do not ever tell her she has to do that. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, remember, the wives being written to would have probably been in very poor marriages because of their following of Jesus. Their husband would have made life very hard on them. And so when a husband is not kind, when he is not loving, when he is not caring as God calls him to be, it many times produces fear into the lives of the wives that they are married to. And so to this, what Peter is saying is, follow Sarah's example, 
by submitting to your own husband, by following your husband as God calls you to, and it says he calls him Lord. Now let me just give you a little bit of context of, of what this looks like. You've got to remember, if you don't know anything about this story, Sarah and Abraham, God told them at 75 they were going to have a baby when they had no babies. And 25 years later, after he thought that only 25 years was enough to wait, that, hey, now you're going to have a baby. And so when Sarah hears it, she laughs. But even in her laughing, um, she still addresses Abraham respectfully in that culture as Lord. So I've told you that your speech is supposed to be respectful. What is being referred to here is not so much calling your husband Lord, but addressing your husband with respect um, that he is due as your husband. And to that, do not fear anything that is frightening. That if you find yourself in a marriage, you know, let me say, it's a lot to put your trust and your faith in another man. And, and if a man breaks that, how do you regain that trust? But your primary fear is not to be that bre- breaking of trust, that breach of trust in your relationship. That primary fear is to always be directed toward God. The thing we fear first and foremost, the thing we respect first and foremost is God. Trusting God to work out this situation for our good and for his glory. I skated through those verses really fast. Verse 7. Likewise, there's that word again. He's stringing it to everything that's been said, starting in 2.12 to now. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, I know there's some language in there to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does that mean? It just basically means that for most marriages, the man is physically stronger than the wife. We know that in this culture, way things are taking place, specifically in these marriages, men did not treat women well. They were not seen as equal to men, so they treated them as less than equal to men in many, many cases. So Peter's instruction to the fellas is to the husbands is to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman because she is physically weaker. Now let me say this. Specifically, here's how it would appear in context, and here's how it would then carry over to us. Life was really hard back then, right? I mean, physical labor was valued more than anything else. There weren't cushy tech jobs sitting at a computer in air-conditioned buildings, right? You were farm working. You were always working the land. You were always working the animals. It was a physically brutal lifestyle. You lived in 100-plus degree heat with no air conditioning. They only get 20 days of rain a year in and around uh, Israel, so It was a very hard life. And let me tell you, having lived in other cultures, I know how this plays out. Having lived in an African culture, having and and seen it up close, most of the men in Africa do do a terrible job of obeying this instruction. Believe it or not. Because if you go to Africa, you know what you're going to see the men doing? Sitting around with their buddies, playing their version of cards. Shooting the bull. You know what they make the women do? Walk the five miles to get the water. Walk five miles back. 
The men sit around and do nothing. And they make the women and children do all the work. Been there. Lived there. Seen it with my own two eyes. That's what Peter's Peter's talking about. Now, let me say how this plays over in our culture is that men have gotten this idea that their lives are so hard that, that, that working eight hours in an air-conditioned office is so brutal and so tiring that when they come home, they deserve to pop the top on a beer and play video games. If this is your idea of getting married, that, hey, I'm going to go make the money, She's going to give me some sex, and she's going to take care of everything at home. You have no business ever getting married. All right? Let me explain this to you. God has three shifts for a man. First shift, go to work, get a job, make some money. Come home. Second shift, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Third shift, train and instruct your children. You get up, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., you go to bed dog-tired at 9 or 10 p.m. You are to work longer and harder than your wife. You are to set aside time for her. Give her a break. When you walk in the door, it's not, whoo, I get a break. It's like, no, honey, you get a break. Because God has called me to lead in such a way. Men, God has called you to three roles. Pastor, protector, provider. You are called to work like a dog, loving and serving your family. And again, If this doesn't sound like a good idea to you, if you want to play video games for the rest of your life, you can do so in your mom's basement for all I care, okay? (laughs) But don't get married. Do not get married. And and I'll tell you this. When I was in seminary for three and a half years, all the marriages that I knew had two things in common. The men were obsessed with video games and fantasy sports. All the time. When guys talked, all the time, all the marriages that had trouble, those two things were rampant in their marriages because they neglected their wives. They neglected their wives. In seminary, God, turn the recording off. In seminary, the guys who worked in the housing and all the seminary, they many times were hit on by wives from other husbands because they were neglected by their seminary student husbands all the time because all they did was go to class and play video games and play fantasy sports happen all the time because those men were not being the men that God called them to be and so guys you've got to ask yourself are you indeed ready for the challenge of being a husband and husbands are you living up to the ideal that God has called you to in how you love and serve your wife and how you love and serve your family and ladies let me just point out one more thing to you that actually shows that Christianity elevates women in such a way that other religions and cultures do not because I know it has been said as a cultural narrative many times that that is not how Christianity is. But the fact that Peter would even write down the words that they are heirs with you of the grace of life would have been mind-blowing to them. Because in so many religions and cultures, a wife's only opportunity to get to the afterlife was if 
her husband actually approved her of getting into the afterlife. Now, if you want to hold a woman under your thumb and manipulate her and make sure that she does everything that you say for the rest of your life, that's a great way to hang somebody's eternal life on the hook, right? You know if you don't obey, I'm not going to tell God you get to get in. And you're like, no, it wasn't like that. Islam is like that. I can tell you exactly it's like that. I was just meeting with a friend from Saudi Arabia this week. And I asked him the question about his own salvation. We said, hey, how, how do you know, how do you know that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to go to heaven? He's like, I don't. There's no guarantees in Islam that, that I get into heaven. So how do you get there? The same way all Americans say they're going to get there. I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. Right? Now, they have a code by which that is. Americans are just, you know, whatever is fanciful in the culture for the day. But, 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 but he, he has no guarantee of his salvation. But I also know that his wife's only guarantee is if he gets in, and then he gives her the thumbs up to Allah, then she gets in. So when Peter would say to the wife, who is, who, who's the believer, you are a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is equality unparalleled. This is culture mind-bend for people to hear these ideas that the woman was the same, that Paul says in Galatians that men and women are equal in the eyes of God. It was, I mean, think about it. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, I mean, he was talking to the Samaritan woman who had five husbands, so it was a woman, she was a Samaritan, all these other things. What's the disciples' reaction when they come back? What in the world is he doing talking to her? Men don't talk to women. Men don't treat women equally. But here's Jesus doing this over and over and over. Jesus elevated and affirmed women like no one else in human history. So the, the, what, the, what we should see from Christianity is men respecting and elevating women and prizing women more than our own lives. Prizing women more than our own free time, more than our own me time, that, that, that we find ourselves because we've worked hard. And guys, I mean, listen, if you don't love and serve your wife this way, your prayers will be hindered. I mean, like, that's a big deal. Why? I'm a child of God. I thought God always heard my prayers. He may hear it, but he's not going to do anything about it. It actually won't go further than the ceiling, guys. If, if you're not loving your wife the way that, that God has called you to, your prayers will be hindered. That should bother you. Like, that should scare you. That should be like, all right, I've got some confessing and repenting to do with my wife when I get home. Um, so let me say, this is how this works. Guys, when you go home today, you say, honey, how can I love you better? How can I serve you better? What would you like to see from me more? And whatever she says, guess what? Bye-bye. Right? It goes bye-bye. Ladies, here's what happens. If he says, mm-mm, no way, no how, you have these men called elders in your church. And you get to say, hey, look, we've had this conversation. And uh, this is an area of sin of his life, and he refuses to repent of it. Then we come. And we have a conversation. Like, dude, you promised to love this wife as Christ loved the church. What gives? 
this is how this works. This is how the community works. This is how the church is supposed to work together with one another. So, I've said a lot. I've covered every verse in the passage. Let me wrap it up with this. We've been in a series called Everyday Church. That we are wanting you to be the everyday church. The actual title of today's passage would be Marriage as Mission. This may sound really weird to you. This may look really weird and strange to you. You may go, I, I don't know how to do this. But, but let me say, having been in a, good, in a good Christian marriage and seen a whole lot of bad ones, a good Christian marriage really stands out among people who don't know Jesus. Because other women find it really weird that my wife never says anything bad about her husband to them. Where to them, they are always arguing, and they're always complaining about their husbands. And they go, hey, why do you not talk bad about your husband? That's an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. They think it really weird how much we like one another and want to spend time with one another. I mean, my wife was just in a, in a group of women the other day, and there were two pastor's wives and all the rest unbelievers. And the, 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 this, was, this was a story. And so maybe this will encourage you, and I'll get in more trouble. Um, it was like basically like, we don't even want to have sex with our husbands. Like, we kind of wish we wanted to, but we just don't want to. And so they just live totally separate lives. And these are uber, ultra-successful people in this community who you would all look up and you'd see their marriage, woo wow. but when, they, when people get to talking, the truth comes out. And they're like, yeah, like, like, like we just don't get y'all, like, 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 y'all are with y'all's husbands all the time. Like, we wish we had that kind of love and affection between us as spouses, but it's just dead. We just live our careers and just buy the toys and the houses that we want, but there's no real connection at home with us whatsoever. Most of the marriages you see today are facades. I've seen enough of them. I've talked to enough of them, counseled enough of them. But I'm telling you, if you will take this instruction... Not only will it make your thing, uh, your marriage, a, a thing of beauty and glory, something that honors God immensely and sees you as two people grow beautifully, but this is the kind of work that Peter is talking about that, that though people may find it weird that you don't talk bad or that you love in a certain way or guys that you choose to actually go home and clean up the poopy diapers instead of going to play poker night with your buddy so you can give your wife a break, that will stand out to them, and it's an incredible testimony and witness that gives you an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And that is what it looks like to be the everyday church in your marriage and to have a marriage that's on mission to win those who don't know Christ and to glorify God each and every day of your lives. With that, I'll go ahead and invite the band back up. And we'll enter into a time of communion. You know, I, I will say this to the married couples in the room. Um, you know, you may want to take a, a moment here before you take communion, and you may find yourself convicted by God's Holy Spirit to, that you need to confess now so that you can, you can take communion with a clean conscience. You can take communion with a, a clean and a right spirit before God because we are called to remember that it is the body of Christ that is broken and his blood that was shed for us. To you who are, to you who are, are single, the only one that you are called to submit to is Christ. 
And so ask yourself, is your life submitted to Christ the way it needs to be? Consider the words of your mouth. Consider the actions of your lives before it is and you partake of this beautiful remembrance of what our Lord God, what our King, what our Savior has done for us so that we could be reconciled and reunited to him. I'm going to pray and then the band will play. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this opportunity. I know these words may sound harsh and and foreign. Um, I know that um, I I know that just the word of God in general, it's just hard to receive sometimes because it's so contrary to, to our rebellious natures and spirits and what culture teaches us. And Father, as I've prayed all week, is that your word would just do its good work. I've done the best I can to present your word in a way that is applicable to us. I pray that you would clean it up and that like arrows, you would make it shoot straight and directly into the the areas that people need in their hearts and lives so that they may live lives that bring honor and glory to you. At the end of the day, Jesus, we just say thank you for your sacrifice. We gather here because you have laid down your life for us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are the cornerstone, and we are being built upon that cornerstone into a spiritual house. May our lives reflect the beauty and the glory of you, Jesus, and of the house that you are building for all eternity. It's in your name we pray. Amen.